My name's Emma Sleeth. Uh, I'd, I'd like to start by acknowledging the um, custodians of Mbantua, or Alice Springs, which is uh, the country that uh, this festival is being held on this morning. Uh, and I'm really pleased to be able to present this panel discussion to you on books that change your life. Uh, now, the subject of this session comes from a campaign that the panel sponsor, the Copyright Agency, launched a couple of years ago. Uh, the aim of this campaign is to remind people why it is, <clears throat> why it is that we love creative things such as books, songs, I guess all works of art in a way, because so often they can be life-changing. Uh, I feel like probably this is a theme where we're preaching to the converted, uh, but it's a wonderful theme. Uh, and it's great to be here today to be talking about just how important books are in our lives. Now, the reason the Copyright Agency is behind this campaign is that it advocates for the value of Australian copyright. Uh, the value to our economy, uh, to our creative culture, and of course to our authors and publishers. Uh, so I'd really like to acknowledge Rosanna Akuili. I'm so sorry, I've probably pronounced that wrong, from the Copyright Agency who is with us today, just standing over there trying to hide. <laughs> uh, they have sponsored uh, this panel today, as well as the um, poetry that's happening uh, over at the cafe. So uh, thank you very much to the Copyright Agency. Um, so without too much further ado, um, I'd like you to have just a little think um, about if you were asked this question, if somebody came up to you and said, you know, if you were to pick a book that has possibly changed your life or had a, quite a profound impact on your life, uh, what would that book be and why? Uh, there might be a little bit of time at the end of this session um, to get some feedback from the audience if you'd like to share. Um, uh, perhaps a book that has had a profound Im impact on your life. Uh, very quickly, I was asked to have a think about what mine would be. Uh, it took me such a long time. I don't know why. I'm <laughs> clearly extremely indecisive. Um, my recall is also very bad. I love books. I've always loved books uh, and music. Uh, I just have a hard time remembering them. Um, but the one book that I will never forget... Uh, is To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Not hugely original, uh, I know. It's in the top ten of, uh, I guess, probably one of the most famous books in the world. Um, but there was a, a phrase or, or just a, um, a paragraph in that book that I will remember because my year ten English teacher, Miss Maguire, uh, read it to us and she had this English accent and she just had such a beautiful way of reading um, and I'm just going to share this passage very, very quickly with you now. Um, so, it's set, uh, of course, in a small town in uh, the Deep South. And the description goes, Ladies bathed before noon after their three o'clock naps and by nightfall were like soft tea cakes with frostings of sweat and sweet talcum. For some reason, I've never forgotten that paragraph. I can just... I can see their skin, I can smell the talcum powder, I can see the little tea cakes. Um, but I guess more importantly, the thing about that book is um, it showed me that uh, it's not always um, a bright and happy, innocent world that we live in. Uh, 
and Atticus had a huge impression on me, the father figure, um, because I guess in a way he kind of lost that fight, but for me it makes me think about the fact that some fights are worth fighting even if you lose, and perhaps sometimes the best fights or the most worthy fights are the ones that you're probably going to lose. Um, anyway, so that's my book very quickly. Um, but I want to start now by introducing these incredible panellists uh, that we have with us here today. I uh, probably don't need uh, too much for an introduction, uh, but I'll start on the, on the far end there. Morris Gleitzman is an award-winning author of children and young adult fiction. He's also the Australian Children's Laureate for 2018 and for 2019. Uh, he's written best-selling books. I'm sure most, if not all of you, have read at least one of them. Uh, so it's a huge welcome to Morris Gleitzman. Also uh, in the middle there, Declan Ferber-Gillick, uh, former local. It's lovely to have him back in town for the festival. Uh, he is a writer, an artist and a musician who works across theatre, poetry and hip-hop. Uh, that's just a small uh, fraction of what Declan gets up to. Uh, his latest award-winning play, Big House Dreaming, uh, has done extremely well and will be performed uh, across uh, various states this year, so that's hugely exciting. He's also uh, been working with the Melbourne Theatre Company. Uh, great to have you back in town, Declan. Uh, and lastly, next to me, Rowena Gonsalves. Uh, I've had the privilege of interviewing Rowena um, just recently. Uh, she's written a fantastic book called The Permanent Resident. If you haven't read it, I really urge you to uh, get a copy if you can. Uh, she is an author and an academic, and uh, the book The Permanent Resident actually won a New South Wales Premier's Literary Award in 2018. Uh, so it's wonderful to have all three of these panellists here this morning. So before we get stuck into the, the main question, the book that changed your life, um, I'm going to start uh, at a slightly earlier stage. Um, and the question is, I guess, the first book that you remember reading. And uh, I might start with you, Morris, if you can um, remember the very first book that you read. Well... I know there were some earlier ones before the first one I can remember, but fortunately the first one I can remember is also a book that changed my life. So I hope you appreciate the time efficiency of this answer. <laughs> um, I actually think every book we complete changes our life in some way, so then it becomes a question of how and, and to what degree. This, this was quite a biggie. One of my um, messages as Children's Laureate to the adult community is never despair when a child in your family or in your care or in your classroom says books are boring um, because, yes, many books are boring, but for every young person among the books that aren't boring for them, there's one that they will eventually get their hands on and it will turn them during the reading of that book and it's a different book for each kid, which is a challenge for teachers, it will turn them into readers and for the rest of their life they will want to hunt down other books that are not boring for them and in fact books that are capable for them of giving them all of the transcendence and brain and, and emotion expanding um, experiences that of course books can. Mm. For me that was a story 
by, or a collection of stories, in fact, by an English author called Richmore Crompton, and the book was called Just William. I was very lucky. As soon as I could read independently, my parents signed me up at our local public library in suburban London, and the librarian there, something of a libertarian, I think, gave the kids the free run of the library. But it, as it happened, it was from the children's shelf that I, I, found, I, I picked up this book. It, it was one of about 38 volumes of short stories about probably the most influential character for me as a writer I've ever read. And by the time I'd read the first story, I knew that um, this, this was going to be a significant part of my life, this reading business. Although, as it turned out, that wasn't always true, and I'll come back to that, should I be invited to say a little more <laughs> later. <laughs> just, just William uh, was the name of, of this series of books that was written, I believe, from the 30s or, or right up into the 70s. So there was quite a lot of volumes, wasn't there? Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes, the first volume was called Just William, but they became known as the Just William stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Does anyone remember those books? Any? Oh, I've got a few. Okay, great. All right, so Declan, can I ask you, what, uh, what was the first book you remember reading? Um, I think, I think the, what, I've, what is written down on the sheet is what, which, which I did remember when I was asked. <laughs> I do remember now, but it's, it's more the title. I think it's Mulgabill's Bicycle and Other Stories. That's the one, yeah. Um, and as, as, as my mum, who's in the audience, will, will remember, um, it was more that I was, it was read to me... Um, Upon my incessant demands, night after night, it was read to me, actually. Um, and it's a, for those who don't know, it's a collection of uh, sort of verse and stories from, um, I guess, like, I, I guess, like, um, it's, bush, it's bush poetry and it's, and it's stories like The Man from Ironbark and Clip Go the Shears. So it's, it's kind of rhythmic, um, often rhyming verse um, that has a kind of placidness within the... Um, within the bush and colonial landscape of, of Australia. So it's got that kind of um, dusty um, shearers quarters feel to it. And um, yeah, I, I think, I think I don't, I don't remember heaps about it. I don't remember heaps about um, being read, but I remember the being read to, but I, I remember still the, um, the rhythms and the rhymes and the way that the way that narrative arcs sort of un unfolded and <clears throat> I think more than anything else, it gave me a taste for um, the, the kind of the rhythmic storytelling capacities of language and um, threading, you know, threading, threading the needle through a yarn. And, um, and, and there was there's sort of lots of kind of comments on, subtle comments on, um, on the Australian social and cultural landscape. Um, yeah, but I think that more than anything else, it really gave me a sense of of movement and motion and the way that language can um, can tell a story arc um, through in, and the musicality the musicality of language of that early bush poetry. I think that's uh, <clears throat> I'm just thinking about it now as you're talking um, the, the those folk um, rhythms that that you're talking about. Banjo Patterson I think wrote uh, Mulga Bill's Bicycle um, and the the links with uh, hip hop. Which, which I know you're, you're also involved in and I have been talking about a lot in the last week because we've had Coolio in town. But uh, really interesting, uh, the, those, those, um, that connection um, 
as you say, the musicality of language and how that can be uh, uh, translated literally into into song. Rowena, do you remember the first book you ever read? You would have been in uh, Mumbai at the yes, time? Yes, yes. Mm. I grew up in Mumbai. Uh, I was born there in India. Um, and I had a mother who worked in admin at Glaxo Laboratories. And thank God, they had a library there. And so mum would bring back books, all sorts of um, uh, comic books, which are now called graphic novels. But uh, <laughs> graphic novels in the... <laughs> 70s and 80s, and also a lot of... Um, so I grew up reading uh, that those sorts of books, but uh, also a lot of um, graphic novels. Um, in the Amar Chitra Katha series, which is a series of um, comic books about Indian mythology, and a lot of Indians my age would have grown up reading those. But the book that turned me into a reader uh, and actually a writer was, don't judge me, but Enid Blyton's um, Five Go Off in a Caravan. <laughs> Uh, and and that actually is um, is a real comment on the lack of Indian books for children that we had access to in the 70s and 80s. And so I read about Julian, Dick and Anne, George and Timmy the dog. <laughs> and I wanted to be George because they were all going off in this caravan. First of all, I had no idea what a caravan was. <laughs> and they drank ginger beer. And again, I had no idea what that was. But um, it was the adventure, and it was, of course, the storytelling that really grabbed me uh, and made me want to go on that adventure, but also want to write about uh, ex you know, interesting experiences. Um, and and ma it made me want to read about people like myself as well, because I was thinking, oh, wow, amazing people. I, I want to be them, and I want to write about... Um, uh, people like me who do these interesting things. Of course, life hasn't turned out that way. <laughs> I don't do as many interesting things as Julian, Dickon, and George and Timmy the dog. But <laughs> but that was a book that turned me into a... And that was actually given to me by a friend, a friend's mother for my birthday, like eighth birthday or something. Mm. Yeah. There so you go. Really they set the benchmark, didn't they? Um, yeah. It's amazing that you can still remember all the characters' yeah. names. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and Timmy the dog. Um, in terms of, uh, I guess, the theme of today's talk, uh, the book that changed your life, um, Morris, have we have we covered that with you? That you were talking Not about? Not at all. No, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Because I think um, I think being lucky enough uh, to find the, the book at an early age um, mm. is hopefully a universal experience. Some wait longer than others. Um, my son didn't discover his book until he was about um, 15, I think. And um, even though I'd been, you know, leaving first draft manuscripts of mine on his bed for years. Um, and, and so it's another author that I'm, I'm grateful for forever when I, when I found him reading the whole oeuvre of this, of this sadly departed Australian writer. But whenever mm. I'm in a, in a bookshop and I see any of the works of Chopper Reed, I give them a little nod of um, <coughs> a little nod of, um, of thanks. Um, but it bears out this notion that it doesn't matter what the first book is, as long as it works for the reader. His second favourite author was um, was Alexandre Dumas, and it was the Count of Monte Cristo, twelve hundred pages of tiny print translated from French, that he was reading three three months later. So it's, it's the start. 
Yeah. But this is not about him, it's about me. So That's right. <laughs> I stopped reading entirely when I was 14 books. Um, I'd had a really rich book-filled childhood, but at, 14, at age 14, I made one of the stupidest mistakes of my life. I was gripped by the crazy notion that one could not be simultaneously interested in books and girls. <laughs> how, how diametrically ludicrous was that? Because the opposite <laughs> I should have known was true. And I didn't read a book till I was 17. I left school during that time um, and was working in a clothing factory. And one morning, one of the cutters who I barely knew came up to me first thing in the morning and said, holding out a book, and said, I've just finished reading this on the train to work. I think you might like it. He handed me a copy of The Horse's Mouth by Joyce Carey. I knew nothing about the book, nothing about the author. I, in fact, thought the author was female for about the first th three chapters <coughs> until um, I was interested enough to um, go to the library and, and look him up. Um, but that night I read the first six or eight pages on the bus going home, and by the time I got off the bus, I knew I'd made a terrible um, wrong turning in my life, and I went to my parents and said, I will do anything I can do to have a life where I'm forevermore surrounded by people who love books. Mm -hmm. And I left work, I went to college to do one of those catch-up courses for people who failed year 12, and then I went to university and one it's rare that one can say this sort of thing with certainty, but um, if that man, who sadly I was never able to contact afterwards, um, although I did write him a letter, um, a newspaper that has one of those series, you know, letters I wish I'd written, I, yeah. I wrote him a letter, um, and, um, but he either didn't read it or he was sufficiently sulky that I'd never thanked him in the past. <laughs> um, but... Uh, I can absolutely say that I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be a writer if he hadn't given me that book. It's high praise, isn't it? Joyce Carey, The Horse's Mouth uh, mm -hmm. is the name of that book if you want to look it up. Declan, um, I love your answer to this next question uh, because I, I've been fortunate enough to, to know you for, for some years now and um, I guess witness a little bit of uh, your, uh, in your journey. Uh, as a writer, as a performer, so so tell me about the book that you've chosen. Um, yeah, I um, I'm not actually a very big reader, um, and I kind of feel sometimes that that um, that I would be a better writer and better artist if I was more of a reader. Um, I, occasionally, I do chew through a book, and, um, and I, I I can read and I like to read, um, but it's not it's never I've never made it a big priority in my life to read. Um, and there's, I don't, I'm not sure, like, a lot of reasons for that. I'm not sure. I think primarily probably because I connect... Um, I feel really connected to the, um, to the spoken word and to the oral traditions. Mm. Um, and something about the liveness of engaging with, with literature or um, stories orally, I think, has mm. is, is always been more engaging with me. So I'm more likely to be listening to um, an album or... Um, or sometimes talking books as well, but yeah, I don't make a lot of time for literature. But I, um, I, and I also don't call myself um, a writer so much as I call myself an artist because my, my practice is so broad. Mm. Um, but I, um, I was recommended a book in around my mid twenties because um, I was feeling sort of really stifled as a creative, and 
like I was <clears throat> not going down the right paths to or not 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 having the right amount of discipline or not I just felt like I could be um achieving and creating and building um, my creative practice a lot more and a lot better and um and I was writing a lot at the time and it was sort like in my mid-20s the early days of have I got the discipline and have I got the fortitude to um to keep the pen moving across the paper each day and anyone who's had a crack at writing knows that it's um it's no easy task um so I was sort of on the precipice of really committing to some kind of creative practice as a as a musician author um whatever and uh had recommend had had recommended to me a couple of times this book called the artist's way um by julia cameron and it's for those who don't know it's a 12 12 step self-guided course um not it's not unlike a self-help book uh, in fact it is a self-help book it's a it's a it's a self-help book that um guides a reader through um uh, a, me a method of um unblocking connecting with and nurturing and sort of fostering a a relationship with the creative self um it's not on it's actually not unlike a 12-step program um in alcoholics anonymous or something like that it's so it's 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 accepting that um life as we know it um and society and culture as we as we know it um is um has many ways of disconnecting us from um what i believe is our kind of our our spiritual mandate um which is to be creative beings and so this book kind of takes us through a process of, in, of of engaging with the areas that we are blocked and through exercises that are both playful and um sort of stringent um yeah finding the natural flow of our of our fun and creativity and when we like the questions like books that changed my life there's been books that, like literary books that i've read that affected me and changed my ideas mm. um but this book um like my life is completely different to how it was before i read this book um I, I I said towards it like during the goal setting that I said in this book I was like I want to be a, I want to be this and a year a year later I was that and more and so it's extraordinary it, yeah it was yeah. It's, it was trans it's transformative I went from being um, a wannabe artist to like an award winning nationally yeah. touring artist in a couple of years I've read so many books like that I've read The Artist's Way I've read more self-help books mm. than you could possibly imagine <laughs> but uh, I guess I'm reading the wrong ones because uh, <laughs> I haven't quite got there yet thanks thanks for that Declan that's um, that's incredible so that was The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron um, uh, yeah it, um, best best-selling uh, book very easy to find uh, Rowena the big question the book that uh, changed your life? Um, many books changed my life in many different ways, but there's this one book that I thought I would share, uh, which really changed my perspective and changed the way I think about the possibilities of books and literature uh, and the possibilities of a fresh perspective. Um, and, and it's a book called The London Jungle Book. And, and it is by this artist. He's an indigenous artist from India, from the Gond community. And the Gonds are uh, the, what in India are called the tribals or um, the Adivasi people. And they lend their name to Gondwana land, actually, which is 
and and their name connects the geographical landmass of you know that's I, I guess that's the archive talking about archives yesterday uh, Charmaine paper talk green mentioned um, alternative archives and the land as an archive and people as an archive and so I think the Gond community in India the indigenous Gond community who have been uh, it's horrible things have happened to them and you should look them up but um, they lend their name to Gondwana land, which, as I said, connects um, the Australian landmass to the Indian, um, uh, to Asia. Uh, but uh, Bhajju Sham was an, he comes from a family of artists, the Gond community. Uh, what they do is they paint their walls with this amazing, beautiful, very, I, I guess, symbolic um, uh, kinds of, um, uh, so it's non-representational in many ways, but it's um, very beautiful work. They paint their walls. And he said, uh, the reason I became an artist and I started painting is because my mom would paint the walls and she couldn't reach the top, so she'd ask me to finish the paintings. And that's, that was his introduction to his traditional um, art. And, um, and so he did that for a while at home and and they were very poor and so he went to a big city and worked as a manual laborer until someone discovered him invited him to london to paint the walls of an indian restaurant in london he went there worked for a few months on uh, this mural um, using his own uh, traditional symbology and he came back and met with these amazing publishers, just I think he attended a workshop by them. They're called Tara Books, and they have been here, yes. Alice, and they've been to Australia, and they've, I think they worked with Magabala, uh, but they've, they're connected in some way. I'm not sure how, I don't really know them, uh, but I love their work. They, are, they really, um, their philosophy is in honoring the creators and honoring the book as an object as well. So they hand make, using handmade paper, they hand make a limited uh, series of certain books. You should definitely look up Tara books. Uh, you should. <laughs> I'm organizing your lives for you now. <laughs> but, um, but the London Jungle book is really <coughs> very much connected. The reason I think I connected so strongly with it is because of what I mentioned earlier uh, about growing up with English, the English canon. Okay, and in the 70s and 80s, of course, there were Indians writing. India has many different literary communities with thousands of years of literary, oral and, and written literary traditions. Uh, but the books that we were reading as children, as urban, middle-class, English-speaking children were very much the English canon, Enid Blyton, etc. But then to see, so it was always the gaze of the empire, you know, upon the world. <laughs> we take whatever we want and we tell whoever stories we want, etc. But this was reversing the gaze and doing it in such a fresh and um, amazing way. So I, I could read a little bit about what he says. Oh, yeah, yeah, just from just the image on the cover, I can read what the artist says, and it's been translated by Geeta Wolf and um, another person. Geeta Wolf is uh, the person behind Tara Books, uh, but he, what he says about this image on the cover, I'll just read quickly. Uh, and he's and it's called Time, and he says one of the things that change when you travel is your sense of time. And sometimes this happens in a funny way. For instance, the first time I called my uncle in Delhi from London, 
I thought it might be cheaper in the evening. So I waited for night to fall, and then I dialed the number. So he's this poor artist taken to London, painting a mural, you know, um, and wanting to connect with his family. He felt quite... Um, uh, he, he missed what he had left behind. So he says, I waited for night to fall, then I dialed the number. But he didn't pick up the phone for a long time, and when he did, he yelled, who's this calling at one in the morning? And I said, it's already one in the morning there. Then India is first. We're faster than London. <laughs> Once most of my work was done, I felt that I had some time to look around the city. So I went on a tour of London. That is when I saw the Big Ben. Hmm. Uh, and I, ooh, sorry. And then I thought, so this is their temple of time. It's beautiful and carefully built because they're very careful about time there, time here. If you're five minutes early for an appointment, they will tell you to wait because you're early. If you're five minutes late, they will tell you that you are late. Everyone checks their watches all the time. I have a watch too, but my symbol of time is still the gond one, a rooster. It wakes you up at sunrise, then the day follows its course, and the next event that marks the passage of time is the sun going down. So this is a colonized subject looking upon empire and, and out of the graciousness of, you know, that a lot of oppressed people, I don't know how they, they show, including indigenous people here, and I was talking with, um, with Doris the other day about, um, about this thing, but um, it, it is very much a colonized subject looking upon uh, the heart of empire and offering his own perspective on it, which is just stunningly beautiful. So. Thanks so much for sharing that. I was looking at it and going, it does look like a chicken. Yeah. And the, the Big Ben is right there. Yeah. It's wonderful. Beautiful book. So uh, published by Tara Books, T-A-R-A. -A. Uh, and the author was a Goan. Uh, G-O-N-D. -O -O so like Gondwana land, Gondwana. but Gond. So, yeah, G-O-N-D. Yeah. They're, they're from the middle of India. Yeah. Yeah, just central India. Yeah, fascinating. Um, how are we going for time, anybody? Anyone... Have a sense of 10 minutes to go. I didn't, I didn't get the irony of that question until just then. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I reckon we've got time for one more question for the panel. Um, oh, it's a tough one. Let's go, let's go with a book. What do you think is a book? that has had a really pivotal effect on the world. And that can be in a good way or a bad way. A really important book that's had a pivotal effect on the world, either for good or bad. Bit of thinking music. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna put you on the spot, Morris. And feel free to mention a couple. Well, um, I've written 40 books, so maybe I'd better mention 40, I think. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, boy, it's a, look, it's a great question, and, um, and, and I suspect that everyone in the room would have a slightly different answer. But I can't, I can't drag myself away from saying that um, rather than naming individual titles, that that magic book that hopefully every child finds, and it's mm. across a population of millions, it's gonna be hundreds of thousands of different books. But th that book in, I hope, every young person's life, 
I don't think any other group of books has affected our human community and its mm. and its endeavors and enterprises more than that book because the difference between being a reader and a non-reader and I exempt highly productive and contributive artists who have chosen other media but um, I think I think we can broaden the definition of reader to say that somebody who is using all of their application to read the human experience it doesn't really matter what medium you do it through but for most people who aren't who don't have an artist a formal artistic practice the difference between being a reader and a non-reader is so huge that it makes the distinction between the specific books that people go on to read of lesser importance even though there are clearly individual titles that that have had a massive effect on the world mm. i mean um, your your um, your most impactful book, um, To Kill a Mockingbird. To, to Kill mm. a Mockingbird would mm. be one of those books because the the moral and and human ele element you referred to that notion that um, that 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 when it comes to grappling with important problems in life, there are many different definitions of success. Mm -hmm. That's a such a profound thing to experience, particularly as a young person, in reading a book. And mm. I think it, that, that book would have transformed countless lives f in ways that I think most of us would agree would, would mm. be for the better. Mm. Uh, it's interesting, uh, very, um, in, uh, very briefly, it, it, To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, big subjects, racism, um, hatred, prejudice, uh, you know, the evil that men do. Um, your books, Morris, take on subjects that are really difficult um, for, for kids, uh, for, any, for adults to read even. And, and when I think of To Kill a Mockingbird, I think of some of your books and the way that you broach these subjects um, so sensitively and with such humour and such balance. So um, uh, thank you. I read one of your books last night about whalers. Uh, bawled my eyes out. Absolutely bawled my eyes out. Um, that's the that's the type of horse, not the um, the, not, the not maritime the practitioners. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, beautiful book about World War One and um, you know the experience of a of a young boy who goes over with his horse and has to. I won't tell you the end because it's just it's devastating. Mm. But yeah, I just wanted to mention that. Um, Pivotal effect, a book that has had a pivotal effect on the world, either for good or bad. Declan, any thoughts? Probably the Bible. <laughs> I was wondering if someone would say that. Yeah. Probably the biggest one that comes to mind. Uh, another yeah. one, probably Communist Manifesto. Mm -hmm. um, those sort of books that like, seize the mass consciousness and, um, and put, it to, put it to some kind of work, whether that's uh, spiritual work or revolutionary work. Mm. Yeah, I think that they're the kind of books that um, shape, like shape the globe. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Rowena, um, I would say, and I know there are huge issues with him, and I make jokes about him in my book, but really, Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children for me and for many Indian writers. He was the person who opened up literature for us and the possibilities of writing, the possibilities of the English language. Of course, um, 
he didn't emerge out of nowhere. He, his work uh, is situated in a tradition of magic realism uh, that extends across India and across you know, South America, Germany, etc. But um, definitely Midnight's Children showed me at least, and, um, and many Indian writers have said this, uh, the possibilities of the English language in representing the, in the multiplicity of the Indian context. Um, and um, the rep how you represent um, the preca precarity of memory especially as someone who's, uh, who has left that, that context, I suppose, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children. Mm. Has anyone read that? Yeah. It's a are, rollicking yeah. read. It's funny, it's, it's, and it's just illuminating in many ways. Yeah. Salman Rushdie was in Alice Springs at one point, because everybody is in Alice Springs at one point. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me the full story because I can't remember it. But I think uh, he was, wasn't he here with Coolio? <laughs> <laughs> you could be right. You could be right. <laughs> that would have been quite the double act. Um, we are almost out of time. It's been fantastic just to spend a bit of time thinking about our own experiences with books. Um, you know, from whatever age it might have been that that, that one book grabbed you. And I guess I wonder if, um, following on from what Morris was saying, you know, we all have that one book that, that turns us into readers. Um, I'd, I'd like to sort of open it out to the audience now and, and I wonder if there's anyone who would like to, to share what that one book might have been. You don't have to give a big speech, but anybody? Uh, yes. There's a mic, mic just there. Um, in the late 50s, the Reader's Digest Road Atlas for Australia. <laughs> <laughs> it was magnificent. Do tell. Large scale maps of the whole country. Ah. You could really see what was going on in the place. And that turned you into a traveller, perhaps? A geographer. A geographer. Wow. Wow. That phenomenal in the days before GPS. <laughs> <laughs> Straight up the centre. Uh, Sylvia? Um. I've been itching for demons. Oh! <laughs> <coughs> because, um, I grew up, um, my name's Sylvia now, um, I grew up in Alice Springs in the 50s. I was very, very, sorry to break down. Oh, no, no. You can pull me up if you want. Sounds um, great. I don't care. Um, so I grew up in the 50s. I was a very um, lonely child could not mix, did not play sports, did not do anything. What I did do um, was read. I didn't go to, my first experience of school, I went to school and I was in, so enthusiastic. I wanted to learn, I wanted to learn to read and write. I go into the schoolroom and the, and the nun says to me, here's your chalk, here's your slate, go and draw at the back. Hmm. Um, absolutely devastating. Because all I wanted to do was to, to read and to, and to teach. Hmm. It was quite ironic because whenever the nun would leave the room, she would ask me to look after the class. Hmm. You know, and still... 
when I, I didn't really go to school. I used to run away. I, I used to run away early or, so I could get home and listen to the ABC stories, serials. Mm. I went to school late because I stayed listening to the ABC serials. So that was my introduction, really, to reading. The a listening. A over the radio. Over the radio. Yeah. Um, so I read comics, love stories, Casper did, did the Ghost. Did your those. schooling experience improve? No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it didn't. It's a shame. And um, even today, at my age, it still um, has me saying, I'm not a writer, I'm not a poet. I even wrote a poem about the fact that I'm not oh. a writer. It's hilarious. <laughs> but so re Reading was my, my life in a way. My mother passed away when I was 10 years old. So I, and, and that was the end of my world. Um, so I headed for the books. And even though I started with Casper the Friendly Ghost and yeah. romance stories and whatever, I eventually graduated to the library. Alice Springs Library used to be across the road where the convent is. Mm. No, Alice Springs. Anyway, um, I used to go as an eight-year-old and sit outside and look in the window of the library, too afraid to go in. And the kids say, don't, that's white people stuff. Mm. Uh, all right. So I used mm. to still stay there and look in the window. And then one day, Mrs Bruchek, who was the first librarian in Alice Springs, said to me, come inside. Um, she can't, so I so forget about the fear, I wanted to see those books. Mm. So I went in and um, sat down and you may think this is pretend but it's not. Walking around looking at the books and I thought, saw the um, rise and fall of the Third Reich. I saw that and I, and I skimmed through it and, you know... It grabbed me and I said, I, I don't know why, how it happened, but that, that was the beginning of my looking at social justice mm. and, and uh, the injustice uh, of what was going on with my people. Mm. Um, Thanks, Sylvia. Just one more. Yeah, no, please. Um, the other one is... Um, <laughs> I um, listening to um, the ABC and they used to play uh, play the um, classics like that. Yes, I'm just sitting here thinking about Natural Life, but uh, not everybody would remember that really. But there was also Les Mis, and I won't insult the French by trying to say <laughs> Les Miserables, blah, blah. You know what <laughs> I mean though, don't you? Les Miserables, yeah. Yeah, so I, <clears throat> I listened to this and that was... Part of the fact that I nearly got kicked out of school because I was to run home every day to listen to the end of it. That story was another one that has never left my never left my mind. I was in Adelaide at Adelaide Uni, and we had to go and watch a movie, watch um, a play because I love plays. Watch the watch a play, and I thought that's good. Anything's better than nothing. 
you know, you got hardly anything in Old Springs in those days. Mm. Um, but anyway, I was sitting watching this um, play and I sat and I thought, far out, I know all these people. <laughs> I know them. <laughs> They're my friends, I've known them, but where do I know them from? Ladies. Mm. And I was in my 40s then. And that book... And I have a copy that I've read. You know, have, I don't know if any of you know a copy of it, but it's huge. Very small print. I yeah. Have a whole copy. And I've had it for mm, so many years. It's, it's brown. It's falling apart. But then... And I have read it three times in my life. That's amazing. Three it is amazing because it's very hard. And as I've it's, got older and blonder, Yeah, it's a long read. It's very hard. But then I... Um, Recent, oh, a couple of years ago, and Alice, we had a, a thing on at the, um, at the, um, I've got chemo brain at the moment, so it's not working well. Ara, not Araluen? No, no, the no. little place. Oh, Totem. The, the Totem. They had this thing of um, the, the book or song that so influenced your life. And I thought, too bad about being shame or anything. I'm going. Ah. I need to tell them about ah. Lamez. <laughs> and so I did. Mm. And I wrote I wrote a story about that. And I had it published in this in the had it pu- published imprint. In the imprint. Yeah. yeah. That's the Northern Territory uh, Writer Centre newsletter. Sylvia yeah. so did such a wonderful job in it. And I never thought that I would yeah, uh, just uh, to interrupt, Declan is uh, heading off back to Melbourne, uh, so he's going to have to go. No, I'm not. I'm going to Townsville for a week. I'll come back here. I was just tricking. He's going to Townsville. <laughs> and then you're coming back to Alice. Yeah, yeah I'll be here till October. Good. Uh, good. Thank you so much. And uh, if you could thank Declan for uh, coming along today. So, yeah, that will, um, I guess, bring this panel to an end. Uh, thank you so much for um, everything that uh, you've shared and thanks for being here on this uh, beautiful yeah. last day of the Writers' Festival. Yeah. Have a and, great day. And thank you, Emma, for oh. the fabulous <laughs> And um, one very quick last comment. <laughs> this session was sponsored by our wonderful yes. Copyright Agency Limited. None of us would be sitting here none of you would be sitting there because there'd be no literary festivals because there mm. would be no Australian books if our copyright laws were not safeguarded mm. by this wonderful organisation. I know we're all libertarians at heart and, we're, and we all want to share everything. But until we live in a world where everything is shared, mm. certain precious things have to be protected. Mm. And the capacity of writers and other creative practitioners to earn a living from their work mm is not only um, obviously very important to us as individuals with bills to pay, but it is actually central to how our culture functions Mm. and so much of what we take meaning and sustenance from is based on that rather mercantile but nonetheless incredibly important thing. So thank you, Copyright Agency Limited. We love you. Woohoo! Thank you. Thanks so much.